Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we are following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Sadia Khan. And Asad Bhatt. And welcome back to Invisible Hit, a podcast where Asad and I research crimes committed against minority communities and then share the story with all of you. This episode is actually part two of the Matthew Shepard story we did last week. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, pause this and listen to part one first. As a quick recap, Matthew Shepard was a 21-year-old young man from Wyoming who was robbed, beaten, and then killed by two other men in their 20s. This happened in October of 1998. The case is widely recognized as a hate crime because Matthew was openly gay, and it seems like the perpetrators knew about his identity. At least that's how it looks so far. Right. Part one ended with Matthew in the hospital. His injuries were pretty severe. By the time his parents flew in from Saudi Arabia, doctors had declared him brain dead. They kept him on life support until he died five days later early in the morning of October 12th, 1998. In this episode, we will be covering the trial, hate crime legislation, and Sadia, you also mentioned that there's some controversial aspect to the case, right? Absolutely, Asad. There is some alleged information that came to surface years after Matthew died, so we'll get into the implications of that. And as always, at the end of the episode, we'll dissect all this information to decide whether or not We think it was a hate crime. Again, this is not to doubt the story or suggest it wasn't a hate crime. We just want to have the conversation. That's great. Let's keep going with the story. Listeners, if you remember, we've been using the documentary Matt Shepard is a friend of mine as a big source for this story. In this documentary, we learned that Matthew's name is already all over national newspapers radio stations and TV news reports by the time his parents, Judy and Dennis, come back to the States. It's no wonder, clearly, Matthew's case was no accident. Matthew's friends are already worried that this was a targeted attack on Matthew's sexuality, a homophobic hate crime. And I understand where they're coming from. We mentioned last episode how the 90s are still fraught with the HIV crisis And plenty of Americans still don't support LGBT identities, which is unfortunate. Beyond that, remember that another gay student on the University of Wyoming's campus had been verbally and physically harassed 
the week before Matthew himself was attacked. Matthew was open about his sexuality, so it makes sense that his friends believe his death could be something deeper. This creates a lot of media traction. Matthew's parents arrive at Buda Valley Hospital in Colorado to find a group of well-wishers and a lot of media folks outside. This is according to the Wyoming History website, biohistory.org, which has also been a helpful source for both our episodes. When Matthew officially dies on October 12th, the news is big enough to reach the president, who at the time is Bill Clinton. On the same day as Matthew's death, Clinton says the following while standing on the south lawn of the White House in Washington, D.C. Take a listen. I want to say again, crimes of hate and crimes of violence cannot be tolerated in our country. In our shock and grief, one thing must remain clear. Hate and prejudice are not American values. I hope that in the grief of this moment for Matthew Shepard's family, and in the shared outrage across America, Americans will once again search their hearts and do what they can to reduce their own fear and anxiety and anger at people who are different. And I hope that Congress will pass the hate crimes legislation. Later, we'll get into the hate crime bill that Clinton mentions, but right now, I think it's important to recognize the visibility that this case is already getting. Two days later, on October 14th, there is a celebrity vigil for Matthew. The featured speakers include Ellen DeGeneres, who by this time has already come out as a lesbian, and on national TV at that. And then a few days after that, the family holds the memorial service. Now you would think that this memorial would just be a comfortable place for Matthew's family and friends to grieve, as it should be. But actually, it's a pretty tense part of the story. Yes, on the one hand, there are genuinely kind people who want to offer their condolences. But on the other hand, unfortunately, Matthew's case is slowly turning into a political battlefield. Asad, have you heard of the Westboro Baptist Church? I have, Sadia. If I recall, they are a bunch of assholes that show up at funerals. Is that right? Ah, yeah, you're right. So for listeners who may be unfamiliar, the Westboro Baptist Church is a church in Topeka, Kansas, founded by a guy named Fred Phelps in 1955. Its members call themselves a Christian church, but Westboro is notorious for its homophobic hate speech. They are pretty awful, by the way. And as Asad said, they often protest the funerals of various members of the LGBT community, which is unfortunately why we are mentioning them now. Yes, on the day of Matthew's memorial service, the Westboro Baptist Church gathers outside and shouts hateful words against homosexuality, holding up signs that say things like, quote, Matt in hell, unquote. Of course, it's bad enough to say things like this no matter what, but imagine to speak so hatefully on the day this family is trying to mourn. It is unbelievable. It's so awful. I just can't imagine what would 
make people so inconsiderate and such big assholes as Asad said. It always baffles me that people want to make, you know, political statements at funerals. Uh, you know, I can understand it in some regard if you're a famous figure, but, you know, Matthew was a private citizen and him and his family deserve the right to mourn peacefully, as you say. You're right, Asad. And now let's talk about the perpetrators. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering about 21-year-old Russell Henderson and 22-year-old Aaron McKinney. While Matthew himself is gaining media attention, what was going on with these two other men during this time? I'm sure you guys are curious, right? So remember that Aaron and Russell tie Matthew to the fence and then drive away? From there, you would think these two assholes would keep their heads down, but in fact, they end up getting into another altercation. While driving back into Laramie, Aaron and Russell spot two teenagers apparently engaging in some kind of vandalism. They stop their car, and for whatever reason, they get out and confront these two alleged vandals. What the hell? Like, why can't these guys mind their own business, Asad? They're just looking for trouble. I mean, clearly they've been wanting to get into fights or altercations all night long. Sometimes people are like this. Right. So this situation escalates into a physical street fight during which Aaron hits one of the teenagers with the butt of the same pistol he had used on Matthew. And eventually, the altercation attracts the police. Wow. Yep. From here, something really interesting happens. While the police are breaking up this confrontation, one of the officers apparently spots an ID, a credit card, a blood-stained coat, and the pistol also covered in blood in Aaron's car. The credit card and ID belong to Matthew Shepard. Yes, all of these items are the evidence of the robbery, assault, and murder that Aaron and Russell just committed not 30 minutes earlier. But at that moment, the police don't do anything. Which to me is surprising, Asad. They should have asked them questions, interrogated them, done something. Agreed. I mean, if you find this kind of stuff in the backseat of someone's car and it doesn't belong to them and it's bloody, you would think that uh, some sort of investigation would happen, right? Absolutely. And I know I may sound like a broken record, but imagine, Asad, if the guys who were part of this altercation were either black, Muslims, Latino, and if the police officers saw this in their car, what would have happened? Yeah, you wouldn't have gotten the benefit of the doubt. That's that's for sure. Exactly. Now, according to a statement in the Colorado News source, police officers kind of figure that the blood is a result of the two teenagers that Aaron and Russell just got into a fight with. That doesn't make sense to me, though. But then again, Asad, I'm pretty sure police know something doesn't really quite add up. Yeah, Sadi, I mean, as you're describing it, you know, I've never been in a fight, let alone two in one night. And so I've got mm. a lot of questions about the amount of blood, right? Like if you see a blood stained coat in the back seat and then someone else's identification, and then this is just not adding up to me. And then for them to be in a quick fight with these two teenagers that supposedly produces a lot of blood, 
I guess maybe, but you would think that the presence of all this blood, I don't know how much amount there was, but even more than a little bit, you know, that there would be more questioning. Exactly, Asad. But I can also imagine that police don't have enough information to act on any of their suspicions, right? Matthew won't be found for another 18 hours. So it's not like the police are even aware that there are these two crazy murderers to keep an eye out for. At least not until later. So Erin and Russell aren't arrested. They have a few injuries from the street fight. So they both get treated at a hospital in Laramie. Soon after their discharge though, Erin and Russell go back to their respective girlfriends to lay low. Russell's girlfriend is a woman named Chastity Paisley and Erin's girlfriend is a woman named Kristen Price. And after these two young men tell Kristen and Chastity what happened, get this, the girlfriends help dispose of the evidence, Asad. Can you imagine that? I guess what was the evidence? The evidence is the ID, the bloodstained coat, Credit card, remember, we mentioned it. Yeah, I, right? yeah, I guess I assumed that the police took it, but yeah, you're right. They still had those in possession. So, oh man. Okay, so even after telling their girlfriends, the girlfriends helped them get rid of the evidence. Crazy, crazy to me. But their hideout doesn't last long. The bicyclist discovers Matthew on the evening of October 7th, and only a few days after, Russell Henderson and Erin McKinney are arrested for robbery and attempted murder before Matthew actually dies. The girlfriends are eventually arrested too. One of the officers at the scene says in the documentary that Aaron in particular showed no remorse. After officers read him his Miranda rights, the you have the right to remain silent thing, right? Those laws. Aaron confesses on the spot. Yeah, Sadi, it looks like the bloody clothes and the ID and the gun that police initially saw actually helped the officers hunt down the people responsible for Matthew's death. Maybe they were able to find Aaron and Russell quickly because the two men just had to run in with the police with those two teenagers. I... Yeah, so that's that's the assumption here. Yeah. So now let's move into the litigation for this case. Russell Henderson's case proceeded first in April of 1999. We found an archived article from the Washington Post newspaper that displays how on the day of his trial, Russell painted himself as somewhat of a reluctant participant in Aaron McKinney's actions. He said that Aaron initiated and carried out all of the beatings while Russell was just driving. How innocent, Asad. And in court, Russell apparently turned to Matthew's parents and said, quote, There is not a moment that goes by that I don't see what happened that night. I regret deeply what I did. I hope one day you can find it in your hearts to forgive me. Unquote. It's good that he's showing remorse and uh, made that statement. And in my opinion, you know, I think so many times people don't show that kind of remorse, especially immediately after things happen. You're absolutely right, Asad. At least this guy is remorseful, which is important for families, yeah. right? They're grieving. They want the perpetrators to at least acknowledge the damage that they've done. 
Now, Russell pleads guilty to kidnapping and first-degree murder. At 21 years old, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and remains in prison today. He even maintains his regret in a 2018 interview with the Associated Press. Russell said the following. Matthew didn't deserve any of this. And I'm so, so ashamed that I was ever a part of this. He was a human being. He was a son. He was a brother. He was a friend. He had many people that loved him. And his, his life mattered. And I, I, think about, I think about Matthew every single day of my life. But there's something else that interested me about Russell's testimony. According to the Mercury News, Russell also claimed in that same 2018 interview that he and Erin were not actually motivated by Matthew's sexuality. Yeah, he says they didn't even know Matthew was gay. They just wanted to rob him. And a 2018 article from BBC News even asserts that Russell and Erin were both using meth at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So now let's bring drugs into the mix. Now there is a bit of discrepancy with this meth claim, by the way. Some sources have no mention of drug use. But if there is some truth to this, their alleged Drug use suggests that either they wanted to rob Matthew for drug money or their meth-induced high made them hostile and impulsive or both reasonings at once. And it can happen, right? Yeah, I mean, I've never done meth. I've never done any drugs. Um, assuming you haven't either, Sadhya, though, I don't know if we want to... No, I haven't, Asit. I don't know how people act on meth, but I can imagine that it could create a different personality for them, for sure. You're right. And this wouldn't make their crime any less awful, Asit, but it would disrupt the claim that this was a homophobic hate crime. Agreed, agreed, yep. But here's the thing. If we go back to the trials... Erin McKinney's testimonies in 1999 suggest something very different. Unlike Russell, Erin didn't just plead guilty. No, Erin tried using something called the quote-unquote gay panic defense. Remember, Asad, we mentioned it on one of our previous episodes? Yeah, it was the Charlie Howard episode, and we referred to it as the gay panic tactic at that point. So the gay panic tactic and defense are the same thing. Sadia, can you explain it a little bit more? Absolutely. So basically, the gay panic defense is a legal strategy where the defendant claims that unwanted yet non-violent sexual contact from a person of the same gender caused said defendant to act violently and impulsively. This is such bullshit, Asad. The gay panic defense is used as a version of temporary insanity which in theory excuses or reduces their guilt in court. It may sound like a ridiculous defense for a crime, and it does sound like a stupid thing to me, and I'm sure Asad has the same thoughts. But according to the American Bar Association, the gay panic defense has been used to reduce the severity of people's sentences, even for murder. Can you imagine that? Wow, that's wild to me. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I can understand it, especially during this time period in American history uh, and even before that. But wow, that's that's really wild. And to I me. want to be clear here. The gay panic defense does not mean that the defendant's safety was in danger. 
the American Bar Association details a situation where the quote-unquote provocative letter, just imagine, a simple letter led to one man killing another. Under the gay panic defense, that murderer's sentence was reduced to second-degree murder instead of first-degree. So, Aaron attempted to use this defense strategy to weasel his way into a lesser sentence. He first claimed that he and Russell did not know Matthew was gay when they led him out of the fireside lounge. Like Russell's testimony, he says they just wanted to rob him, but then, once they all got into the car, he said Matthew put a hand on his leg, and this made Aaron angry. During Aaron's police confession, he said he replied to Matthew's alleged advances by telling Matthew, guess what, we are not gay and we are going to jack you up. Now, to me, there seems to be no difference between this gay panic defense versus clear homophobia, right? For example, yeah. Aaron apparently said the following words shortly after his arrest, and I quote, Being a drunk homophobic, I flipped out and began to pistol whip the fag with my gun, unquote. And then in a 2018 article from the Coloradan, one of the lead investigators of the case released a letter that Aaron wrote before he and Russell went to trial, which for context would mean that the letter was sent sometime between October of 98 and April of 99. So in this letter, Aaron is very clearly trying to construct a story. First, he tells Russell to blame everything on him, maybe so that Russell may walk away with a lesser sentence. And I'm confused, Asad. Why would he do that? Maybe he was feeling guilty. Maybe he was he wanted to try to save Russell. You know, maybe he maybe it, it was true, right? Like maybe maybe it was Aaron that did most of it. And Russell was just as he claims kind of just along for the ride. Yeah, that makes sense. And then Aaron claims that he and Russell were just trying to give Matthew a ride home when Matthew tried to, quote, get on him, unquote. Again, Aaron is clearly making shit up, but it does muddy the details of the night of October 6. When did Aaron and Russell learn of Matthew's sexuality? Did they know when they first lured him out of the bar? I just feel like Aaron's own gay panic defense would mean that he did know at some point that Matthew was gay and then acted out in reaction to that, which would be a hate crime. So we have a lot to talk about here, Asad, especially since you knew about this case before I did. What do you think of these testimonies and the possibility of hate crime? Yeah, Sadi, I mean, I know a lot more about this case, obviously, now than I did before. I knew at a high level that this young man died because of a quote-unquote hate crime. People beat him up and killed him because he was gay. The gay panic defense, gay panic tactic, whatever you want to call it, like, it's just ridiculous to me, right? Like, for someone to murder another person because maybe they were coming on to them or maybe they expressed their attraction, you know, it just... It's ludicrous to me. Like you just wouldn't 
like what, how is that a defense? Exactly. <laughs> you know, right? It just it, it, and I get it. This is you know this was whatever 30, 40 years ago, and so you know it was a different time and 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 all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's just it's 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 so infuriating for sure. I couldn't agree more. I said. By the way, in the end, the judge dismisses the gay panic claim. Apparently, it is too close to the temporary insanity defense, which is not allowed in Wyoming. And I'm so glad that the judge did that. The death penalty is once again an option in Aaron's sentencing, but he also receives two life sentences like Russell. And since then, Aaron has generally turned down interview requests. So in a 2014 interview with a Wyoming Oral History Project, Aaron McKinney's defense attorney, Dion Custis, maintains his belief that Aaron and Russell's primary motivation was robbery, not homophobia. Here we go again, I said, what the hell? But on the flip side, for one of the detectives at the time, a man named David O'Malley, who spoke with the Coloradan in 2018, he believes it was both. Maybe when Aaron and Russell first spotted Matthew, they figured they would rob him. But as O'Malley says, the robbery motive stops once they take Matthew's wallet. I said this is such an important point, right? So if the motive was only robbery, then it would stop once they had Matthew's wallet in their possession, right? Yeah, why right? continue yeah, doing what they did, for sure. Absolutely. O'Malley then asks us all to consider, and I quote, What would motivate you to drive that extra couple of miles and pull this kid out of a truck and tie him to a fence and hit him between 19 and 21 times in the head and face? Sally, I think that's, to me so powerful and and something i didn't really consider in the way that he put it you know yeah if it was robbery it would have stopped a lot earlier than it did and and it turned into a hate crime it, even if it yeah it seems there was so much more motivating erin and russell than a mere robbery even if they were high on meth that night matthew's sexuality still seems to have played a role in erin's escalated anger and that's based on his own words right yeah 100 percent so, Aaron and Russell's respective girlfriends were tried and sentenced as accessories to the murder. Russell's girlfriend, Chastity Paisley, was sentenced to 18 months but only served six of them. Aaron's girlfriend, Kristen Price, was sentenced to 180 days but only served 60 of those days. And I wonder why this discrepancy or this difference we don't have that information, but I would be very interested in knowing why they were sentenced differently. So now that the litigation part of this story is done, Asad, can you share an update with us about Matthew's family, friends and the legacy they would have made in his honor? Yeah, certainly, Sadia. So on December 1st of 1998, the day that would have been Matthew's 22nd birthday, Matthew's parents, Judy and Dennis, founded the Matthew Shepherd Foundation. We'll leave a link uh, to their website in the show notes so that you can check it out for yourself. But in short, their foundation aims to promote inclusivity and equality through different programming. 
For example, they've held speaking engagements at various functions and provided hate crime prevention training to law enforcement officers. Logan Shepard, Matthew's younger brother, worked in various positions in the foundation for years. Uh, and I, you know, I just think it's amazing that the Shepherds have used their tragedy for something so positive. Um, that takes a lot of strength, you know, for sure, for, for them to do that. And then great things were happening outside of the family, too. In the year 2000, just two years after Matthew's death, uh, the playwright and filmmaker Moises Kaufman created the Laramie Project to explore the aftermath of Matthew's death. The Laramie Project is a play, but it draws on news reports and real-life interviews with many different people living in Laramie. Mm -hmm. And good news listeners, in 2002, the play was adapted into a movie, which is now available on HBO Max and Prime Video. And in 2009, about 10 years after Matthew's death, President Barack Obama passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. For context, do you remember the moment much earlier in the episode where Bill Clinton mentioned the need for a hate crime bill? Well, at that time, it wasn't actually passed, even though Aaron and Russell still received double life sentences. So when President Obama signed this act into law about 10 years later, it was a pretty important moment for the country. And not just for Matthew's friends, families, and supporters. Notice the second name in the law, James Byrd Jr. Listeners, if you have not yet learned about him, I suggest you do your research. James Burr Jr. was a 49-year-old African-American man who was also brutally murdered in 1998, a few months before Matthew was attacked and killed. Bird's death was also a hate crime. The culprits were white supremacists. Oh, no. And this also was a pretty difficult case to learn about, but to me, this was why hate crime legislation is so important, right? Hate crime legislation recognizes that sometimes certain people are vulnerable to attacks just for being who they are, and it's something we all need to be aware of. And of course, we want to mention the documentary, Matthew Shepard is a Friend of Mine, which once again has been an amazing resource. One of Matthew's friends, a woman named Michelle Josie, directed the documentary, which was released in 2013. You can rent it through a few different streaming sites, so if you get a chance, I recommend giving it a watch. So a lot of great resources, and we're going to donate to the foundation, um, and we encourage you to do that as well. But before we go, Sadia, I still have a question for you. You mentioned in part one that you found some more controversial kind of alleged details, right? Like, I know you were talking about the uncertainty of the Matthews claims. Was that it, or was there something else? Yes, I said there is more to the story, and I'm glad you remembered so one last thing that we want to share with you, the meth use is a piece of that more controversial story. In 2013, 15 years after the murder, a journalist named Stephen Jimenez wrote and released a book called The Book of Matt, which suggests a wildly different take on the case. In this book, Jimenez not only claims that crystal meth played a big role in the case, he asserts that Matthew himself was also addicted to meth, mm. even selling it sometimes. But beyond that, remember that up until now, all reports have said that Matthew did not know his attackers, right? Yeah. Well, Jimenez alleges that Matthew and Aaron McKinney actually knew each other 
before the night of October 6 because they were in a sexual relationship and that they had bought drugs from each other supposedly the night of Matthew's murder was actually a fight over meth with Matthew at the center of it. Oh my goodness. That is definitely something that came out of left field there, Sadia. I I don't even know where to begin. Exactly, Asad. And honestly, I don't believe this story. I kind of rolled my eyes when I first read through the Guardian article because it seemed so unfounded. There are very few resources that corroborate what Jimenez said. So I don't know where this is coming from. The book has even been used as fuel for the right-winged groups who use it to discount Matthew's story altogether. And Jimenez has received a lot of pushback against his book, thus making it the controversial part of this case that I was talking about. Yeah. And to be fair, Jimenez says in a 2013 interview that he did not intend for this book to have a political agenda. He claims that he went to Laramie in the early 2000s to research the case for a screenplay he was writing. It's also worth mentioning that Jimenez himself is openly gay. So it doesn't seem like he was investigating the case to discount it. And lastly, Jimenez claims in that same 2000 interview that the media quickly reached a conclusion on this case without doing adequate research on what actually happened. And sure, if you are playing devil's advocate, there are times when the media does sensationalize a story. We know that, Asad, right? But I don't know. I am not really convinced by what Jimenez is saying either. He says this information just comes from interviews with people in Laramie, people like Russell's and Erin's friends, people in town who claim they had seen Matthew and Erin together, things like that. It just seems so bizarre to me, Asad. I mean, at that point, isn't it all just rumors and hearsay? Because neither Russell nor Erin have ever ever confirmed knowing Matthew before October 6th. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's it's certainly interesting to me. Uh, and, you know, I, I, like you said, I think that there sometimes is um, a lot that the media does to kind of sensationalize the story and like tie it up in a nice bow and, and all this kind of stuff. And this definitely kind of, you know, ruins that. But I think at the end of the day, like for me, it doesn't, change much about the outcome right like regardless if they knew him ahead of time or it was a meth deal at the end of the day like they tied him up and beat him to death you know and exactly yeah i think we you know the motive of whether it was over a drug deal or if he was gay yeah i mean that's i i think that it's a you know maybe a little bit unclear for some people but at the end of the day like they beat the shit out of this guy and and left him to die in the middle of a field. And, you know, one of them showed no remorse. And so, I don't know. Exactly, Asad. And the reason why we brought up this version of what happened is because these claims are out yeah. there. And we thought it's worth discussing them and analyzing them so that people don't just latch on to what he says, right? So to me, you're absolutely right. It doesn't make sense. 
that story doesn't make sense and at the end of the day there was still a murder no matter what regardless of all the complexities we've discussed we can't forget that a 21 year old was brutally murdered right so i said what do you think do you think it was a hate crime or not yes ali i mean i think for me it clearly was a hate crime and you know i think there are some questions out there but all the details that we've discussed everything that's come out even the confession of of one of the perpetrators like to me he was targeted because he was gay and he was left to die i think maybe more importantly he was left to die because he was gay and yeah for me like it clearly is a hate crime i agree with you and you've put it beautifully so i don't have anything else to add it was a hate crime and an innocent life was taken so on that note we've reached the end of this two part story on matthew shepherd there is a huge amount of information on this case and we tried to synthesize as much as we could for this podcast but if you're still interested in learning more you can look into the resources we mentioned throughout the episodes if you are interested in donating to the matthew shepherd foundation as asad mentioned in the beginning it's a non-profit you can do so by heading over to their website and last but not least to the dozens of people who lost a son a brother and a friend 25 years ago our hearts go out to you thanks for listening everyone thank you so much for listening to invisible hate If you want to learn more check out links in the show notes about the case please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover or the ones that we've already covered you can reach us at info@invisiblehatepodcast.com you can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram just search for invisible hate podcast thanks again for listening if you like what you hear please share it with a friend give us a five star review Invisible Heat is a joint production of Philion Media and Immigrantly. We would like to thank our incredible team which includes Michaela Strathe, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Campbell and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with another hate crime for you to analyze. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan and I'm Asad Bhatt.